You just heard the opening of the opening movement, marked grave, of Johann Sebastian Bach's Sonata No. 2 in A minor, BWV 1003, for solo violin, as performed by violinist Jennifer Coe on her new album for CD Records, Bach and Beyond, Part 3. And those of you who have listened before know that every time we have a new release on CD Records, we have a new classical Chicago podcast. And this is actually episode number 40 in the series. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records. And my guest on this podcast is, of course, violinist Jennifer Coe. Hi, Jenny. Hi, how are you? I'm great. I'm so glad you could be with me. Thank you for having me. Jenny is, of course, very familiar to CD listeners as Bach and Beyond Part 3 is her 14th album for CD Records. Jenny has actually been recording with us for 20 years now. Her first recording sessions were back in 2001. On the Sadie Records website, it says, Recognized for intense, commanding performances delivered with dazzling virtuosity and technical assurance, violinist Jennifer Coe is a forward-thinking artist dedicated to exploring a broad and eclectic repertoire while promoting equity and inclusivity in classical music. And I think that is a wonderful description of your artistry and your mission. Jenny made her debut with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra at the age of 11, She was the top prize winner at the Tchaikovsky International Competition in 1994 at age 17. She was the recipient of a prestigious Avery Fisher Career Grant and was Musical America's Instrumentalist of the Year in 2016. And those are just a few career highlights. Jenny is known for her innovative programs such as Shared Madness, a series of mini commissions, Bridge to Beethoven, centered around the Beethoven violin sonatas, of course, For Sadie Records, she's recorded Limitless, a series of composer collaborations released on CD right around this time last year. And incidentally, that is the subject of Classical Chicago podcast episode number 31, if you want to learn more about that album. That was recorded about a year ago. And of course, her Bach and Beyond series. Her current projects include Alone Together, an online commissioning project, and the New American Concerto, and we'll be talking about those toward the end of the podcast. Well, of course, the project at hand is your Bach and Beyond, which has been quite a journey in the concert hall and on record. I should note on record, Bach and Beyond Part 1 came out in 2012, and Bach and Beyond Part 2 was a 2015 release. So what prompted you to create this project, and how has it evolved over the years? What initially prompted me to create Bach and Beyond was that it was the 325th birthday year of Bach. And I've lived with his music and his solo violin sonatas and partitas for my entire musical life since I was a kid. And his music has stayed with me throughout my life. There are different works that I really loved as a child. And as an adult, I don't necessarily relate to it as strongly. But Bach has always been a constant. I was terrified of performing Bach in public. So one of the ways that I was able to engage with that idea of terror was to think about how did composers throughout history deal with this huge pinnacle for violin writing? 
it's really complex and having a lot of depth, I guess, the sonatas and partitas of Bach. I find it fascinating to see how other artists respond to things, and they all have their very specific and different perspectives on the world. So I wanted to explore this idea of composition for solo violin throughout history, and it was interesting to me because nearly every single work that I came across dealt directly or subconsciously with the six sonatas and partitas of Bach. So initially, (laughs) this project started a while ago, and it's been a 10-year cycle at this point. It's interesting to go back into this mind space of how I was feeling back in 2010 and 2011. But I think a lot of things happen in one's life over a 10-year period of time. And for me, Bach wrote these sonatas and partitas over a 17-year period in his life. And it really feels like a personal musical journal. And in fact, he writes Say Solo for the title of all six sonatas and partitas, which essentially means you are alone. And I really see it as an understanding that we travel through this life. We begin it and end it alone, but that's not without the joy of knowing other people and all of these different life experiences. But ultimately, we are alone. So I think for myself, the journey from when I first conceived of this project to when we released the first recording, things have changed so significantly in terms of just even different stages of one's life and different processes and different experiences that we've lived through. And of course, each album in the series is its own musical journey, Bach and Beyond Part One includes the third partita in E major. It opens with that and it concludes with the great D minor partita with the Chaconne at the end, and also has music by Eugène Izai, Kaya Sariajo, and Missy Mazzoli. Part two includes the first sonata, as well as the first partita, and also music of Bartok, and again, Sariajo. And of course, part three is the last two sonatas, along with music by Berio and John Harbison, all of which we will be talking about. I was wondering, why end the series with the sonatas number two and three? As I've begun to do these marathon concerts of all six sonatas and partitas of Bach, I really do see an entire lifetime within these six sonatas and partitas, especially when they're performed as an entire set. And for me, what's remarkable is in the first sonata and first partita, he's really working within the form that had existed before. It's a little different in the first partita because of the double movements, but essentially there's four movements with a fugue in the first sonata and the partita, there's the dance movements. But then for me, I'm always interested in this period of time in composers and artists' lives when you see this moment of becoming who they will become. And you see that initial, and you hear, and you observe this moment of evolution in their work. And I really feel this strongly in the second sonata. And the third movement of the second sonata, I see as almost the predictor of the first movement in the C major sonata. 
there's an underlying heartbeat. And for me, it's almost like the beginning and the birth of who he is to become as an artist. Then in the next partita, which is the second partita in D minor with the Chacon, he's just blown the form out of the water. But already in the second sonata, the fugue is 50% longer than the G minor. Also, the first movement doesn't end on the tonic chord, which just basically means that it doesn't return home. So there's not really the sense of closing at the end of the first movement. And then I chose the C major to close this series because for me, this is the other side of the point of evolution if that makes sense. So we go through the second partita where it's four dance movements and then 50% of the partita is the Chacon, which he's radically moved away from the form of partitas and dance movements. The first four movements are pretty traditional, but then the Chacon really changes this form completely. So from there, we move into the third sonata in which the first movement is completely unlike the first and second sonata. And now we have a kind of delayed heartbeat, if you will. So it's a dotted eighth and then a sixteenth. It's like the heart is there, but there's been a shift from the second sonata. And then the fugue is the longest fugue. It's the longest movement, actually, in all six sonatas and partitas. And for me, if the Chacon is this work that is engaging with the human desire to transcend our spiritual and physical being and existence. The C major fugue is really about acceptance and using every part of who we are as human beings to build this amazing cathedral of a fugue. And then what's beautiful to me is that the third movement is really this transition from sadness in the last movement, which is this embrace of life. And then it's just remarkable to me because he ends the entire series with the third partita, which is the E major partita, which is pure joy. And to be able to go through nearly two decades of your life and to go through joys, but also great loss, and to come out of this process with holding on to joy is just remarkable to me. That was a very long answer to your question, but essentially the reason I chose the second and third sonatas was because they're the most beautiful points to me about what it means to be an artist. And those are those points of transition and evolution and the act of becoming. Well, that's a wonderful overview. We'll get to some music now. We opened the podcast with the beginning of the opening moment, the grave of the A minor sonata. Let's pick up where that left off. Before we do, I'll just talk a little bit about this movement. Patrick Castillo, who writes the notes to this series, notes its florid, fanciful writing of this movement. And to me, it sounds so personal, almost like an operatic recitative. How do you feel about it? Everything is relative, right? It might seem very similar compared to the first movement of the first sonata, the G minor, in terms of the form, which is kind of a recitative, in terms of a lot of this florid embellishments. But the character of the grave is completely different. So it might be dealing with the same form that existed before, but it's a complete shift in writing and in terms of there's a darkness that's entering. 
Well, it's also very beautiful, especially as you play it. So let's hear right where we left off. The podcast, of course, opened with part of this movement. So we're going to pick up from where we stopped there. And here is the rest of the grave opening movement of Johann Sebastian Bach's Sonata Number no. 2 in A minor for solo violin. You just heard an excerpt, most of the 
opening grave of the Sonata Number no. 2 in A minor, BWV 1003 of Johann Sebastian Bach, as performed by violinist Jennifer Coe on her new album on CD Records, Bach and Beyond Part 3. Of course, it's the third album in a three-part series. And if you like what you heard, I hope you'll want to check out the whole album, which you can do on any streaming service, such as Spotify or Apple Music, when it's released on November 13. You can also, of course, acquire it as a physical CE straight from the Sadie Records website, www.sadierecords, that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records, .org, or Amazon.com, or Archive Music, or wherever else you like to get your CDs from. Of course, on its release date, it will be available as a download from iTunes as well. So lots of choices, but whichever you choose, I hope you'll want to check out this whole album because it really is wonderful and it's the end of such a long personal journey. Jenny, earlier you referred to that marking on the title page of Bach's manuscript, which is such an interesting pun because one would expect on a manuscript that's six separate pieces for a solo instrument you would expect it to say, say soli in Italian, six solos, but instead it says, say solo, which, as you point out, is correctly translated as, you are alone. And in fact, uh, Patrick, in his notes, describes the sonatas and partitas as a majestic monument to solitude. So I have to ask, how does it feel to play these and the other solo works, especially during this time of isolation due to the COVID crisis? You know, I'm going to sound really emotional when I talk about this, so it's hard. In March and April, it was a period of isolation. I think people were also terrified. And the degree of death and tragedy and loss. Being in Manhattan, I've never in my life experienced something like that. And it was about six and a half weeks. And so I think just the level of human suffering. It's overwhelming. And would you say that these solo works, especially the Bach, maybe speak to you even in a different way or a stronger way when something like this is happening? I think the kind of internal dialogue that one has, and because Bach has such a emotional depth and how one approaches it, thinks about it, listens to it, plays to it, is so personal. Normally, I would say that they were a point of solace, but at that point, there was no solace. Let's move on to talking about your mission in this whole series, this Bach and Beyond series. What meaning does pairing the Bach sonatas and partitas with the later, usually much later, composers he inspired hold for you and for the listener? It's a mission in my own life to bring forward voices that I believe are missing in classical music. It's become quite normal, I suppose, for me to engage with music with contemporary perspectives. It's the same thing, right? So I collect historical recordings. However, if I go to a concert, when we could go to concerts, but when I would go to a concert, I never wanted or expected somebody to play in the same way that, for example, Courtois might have performed Schumann. So this idea of fluidity in history and performance practice, I think a lot of that has clearly affected even the records that I've released with CD. There's two by four, which is the Bach double concerto, also 
three new works by Philip Glass and Anna Klein and David Ludwig. And that was an exploration not only of this repertoire of double violin concerti, but also this idea of performance practice being handed down from a teacher to a student and of the history. So that, of course, is with Jamie Laredo, and we performed these with the Curtis Orchestra, which is where both Jamie and I went to school, although (laughs) clearly at different times. He was my teacher there. He did study with Galamian, but he also studied with Gingold, who studied with Eugene Isai, who is actually one of his works is on Bach and Beyond Part One. So for you and for the listener, does pairing Bach with the later composers speak to the timelessness of Bach's music? I believe in fluidity. So just like if we read a book from the past, it could be anything from the Bible to James Joyce, reference points are really different. So how we interpret this today is very different from the time in which it was written. I'm just interested in how contemporary society shifts how we read these works. And it it also reminds me a lot about this concept of memory and how each time we remember something, we're actually in some way rewriting the experience in our own minds. So that's how I see music as well. It's these memories of who we were as human beings and as society, what are similarities that have followed us or perhaps plagued us for hundreds of years. Specifically with Bach's music, the solo sonatas and partitas, this is about an internal journey throughout one's life. And I think, again, referring to the title, the original title, Say Solo, It's really this individual life's journey that we travel alone. In a sense, I think that that's why these works are timeless. I think also the fact that he wrote them over such a long period of time. Although, to be frank, he was not the most popular composer by far by the point of time period of his death or even in his lifetime. We really have musicians to thank for, I can't remember the name of the composer who introduced Bach's music to Mozart, but then suddenly you see Mozart writing fugues, whereas before he wasn't writing fugues at all. So you can see how, again, this idea of evolution and how music is handed down from generation to generation and how that inspires the next composer. So you might see it in Mozart just like you might hear it and see it and observe it then in Berio, in Bartok, and in John Harbison. Well, actually, that's a great lead into my next question because I was going to ask how Bach's influences felt in the later works and what the similarities might be. In John Harbison's work, he writes them all in dance movements. What's interesting to me is that they are much more American dance movements, if that makes sense. There are references, musical references, like there's one movement that has a reference to L'Histoire du Soldat by Stravinsky. There's a little part in one of the movements that comes from St. Matthew's Passion. And sometimes I'm not sure if it's conscious or subconscious, but you can hear it throughout the music of each composer. Berio is really referencing to this pedal point of the Chacon. And I chose the Berio because I wanted to reference back to the first CD and to the first program of Bach and Beyond, which has a Bach 
D minor partita with a Chacon in it. And John Harbison's work is also written very specifically in the form of a partita with its dance movements. And of course, the Bach that's on this album is only the sonata. So in a way, I feel that the Barrio and the Harbison are the interweaving partitas. I had not thought of that. That's a really great point. The next piece, of course, on the album is by Luciano Berrio. What should people know about him as a composer, and why did you choose him for this specific album? Berrio made a series of sequences for different instruments and voice, and oftentimes it was exploring one's extended technique. But in the sequenza, it is, of course, very obsessive, as people will hear. There's a lot of the pitch of A, <laughs> but there's something incredibly virtuosic in it. It's definitely incredibly difficult. And I suppose Bach is difficult, but it's engaging with one specific side, I think, as well, of Bach which is perhaps the difficulty of it. But then there's also obsessiveness and a kind of return to form. And I'm talking about pitch right now, but there's also quite a variety of how he engages with that. And in fact, there's also a somewhat improvised section in the middle of the burial, which is quite interesting. It's not exactly improvised. It's more that the choice is up to the performer of which sections we choose to perform at that certain moment. It's not unlike things like the recitatives in the opening movement of the A minor. And then, of course, I wanted to also connect the barrio to the A minor sonata because it's engaging with those pitches, but it's a modern key shift or contemporary shift and engagement with that same pitch. Of course, the piece we're referring to is sequenza number eight for solo violin. This is eight in a series of 14 different sequenzas for different instruments that Berio wrote. In the program notes, in addition to noting Berio's fascination with virtuosity, Patrick Castillo notes Berio's own description of this particular sequenza as, quote, a development of instrumental gestures. Uh, what does that mean to you? Even starting with the opening, people might think it's just A, 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 A. But in terms of gestures, it's very subtle turns of placement, of grace notes, of rhythmic embellishments, of interruptive material. So I think that that's, in a sense, gestural. And it really does go all the way through every extreme of gesture, virtuosic, tender, expansion of time, compression of time, things like that. And of course, Saberio describes the piece as a tribute to the great Chacona from the D minor Bach partita. And Patrick, in his notes, comments that this kind of brings your cycle full circle because, of course, that was the concluding work on volume one. Yes. Let's hear some of that then. So here is an excerpt of Luciano Berrio's sequenza number eight for solo violin as performed by Jennifer Coe. Thank you. 
You just heard a portion of Luciano Berrio's Sequenza No. 8 for solo violin, performed by solo violinist Jennifer Coe on her new album for CD Records, Bach and Beyond Part 3. You're hearing it on a classical Chicago podcast, actually episode number 40, from CD Records. And it's wonderful that Jenny's here to talk about her new album. The next piece on the album by John Harbison is actually a commission of Jenny's. might be a good time for you to talk about the importance to you of commissioning new works and the work of your foundation that does this work, Arco Collaborative. So I really believe in imagining the world we want or that I want to live in and then making that world and creating that world. When I engage with the idea of commissions and raise money for commissions and come up with projects, it's about building an ideal world. And I think with commissions, it's about both expanding, hopefully, the field through inclusivity, but also about engaging with its history in terms of the forms that have existed for centuries, like the form of partita or the form of sonata or even the form of a concerto and how that transforms in the context of today. So commissioning is really important to me. I think supporting my fellow artists is incredibly important. I really believe that we are all here in service to others, especially in music. One can literally hear different philosophies of different ways that people live or have chosen to live. And you can hear that in musicianship. So even in terms of Bach or any other music, it's very revealing of who that performer and who that musician is. So I feel the same way in terms of commissions. And I like to see other people's perspectives on the world. Because I already know all of the stuff that I think about. And that's in my brain. I'm much more interested in what other people have to say about the world. Now, you've commissioned quite a range of composers. Harbison would probably be one of the more well-established. Is that fair to say? I've been fortunate enough to have had, I think, over 100 works written for me. In terms of fame, that has moved and changed over a decade, over 15 years. So, for example, the first disc of Bach and Beyond, part one. Missy Mazzoli's Dissolve, Oh My Heart is on that CD. I had asked her to write this piece in response to the Bach Chacon. And I don't know if that many people knew her. And at this point, she's one of the first women to be commissioned by the Metropolitan Opera. So we can also see how people's careers have really shifted over the last 10 years. So in terms of who's most established, I think that that's still changing at this point. But I certainly know that Kaya Sariaho is very well established and highly respected. And of course, her works were on the first two CDs, Bach and Beyond. Were either of those commissions of yours? No, those were not commissions of mine. I guess I gave the American premiere of Freeze, and I think it was the world premiere recording that we did on Bach and Beyond Part 2. And it's interesting, the first work from Bach and Beyond Part 1, it was Nocturne 
bike hire. And at that point, I had never met her in person, or I had just met her in person. And as one can see, there was a very personal and artistic relationship that developed over the years to the point that there is the Sariaho CD that we released. And on that CD, there are several works that she did end up writing for me. Well, to get back to the Harbison, this is the last piece you added to the project, I believe. It was written in 2015, and the title is simply For Violin Alone. How did you decide to commission him to be the final composer for this project, and can you describe him a little bit as a composer? So I approached John because I knew that he was engaging with and conducting all of the cantatas of Bach. Also, I've known John since I think I was 17 years old, and he was composer-in-residence at Marlboro. And we ran into each other again, and we just started speaking a great deal about Bach and discussing a variety of his compositions. And I realized, oh, here's a person that seems to love Bach as much as I do. I'm going to ask him to write a work in celebration of the six sonatas and partitas. So that's how this commission came about and this piece came about. I was really thrilled to have a chance to work with him and to have him write a piece of music for me. And now I feel lucky that he's written even more music for me. That's wonderful. As noted, it's essentially in the form of a Baroque dance suite. It's got a ground, two dances, an air, a march a duet, and an epilogue. And I thought we might zero in on one movement, which we're about to play, which is the march. Patrick, in his notes, describes as a brash thing punctuated by mysterioso, timido, and ansioso utterances. For me, what I love about it is its off-kilter angularity, and I think it's a good example of Harbison's sense of humor, and I believe this is the movement that has the Stravinsky reference that you mentioned earlier. Yes, so these mysteriosos. Well, first of all, there's the references literally in the march aspect. Of course, Soldier's Tale is there's a soldier involved, so there's marching involved. So I think that's a reference in this movement. But I also see that these distanced, mysterioso utterances are also a part of that. L'Histoire du Soldat is this exploration of the selling and buying of a soldier's soul, essentially, which is quite a personal exchange to make with the devil. Maybe the entire movement is actually a reference to that. And now, actually, no one was thinking about this <laughs> like a couple years ago. Now it's interesting because Stravinsky actually wrote this after the Spanish flu pandemic with the idea that this band and small music group and actors would travel to different towns because people couldn't come to large concert halls. Unfortunately, at the time, it was not successful. It did not really take off. It's an interesting thing to think about now, I suppose. Yeah, actually, it's funny you mentioned that our last podcast episode was with uh, Milena Parovandestadt of the Dover Quartet, and they talked about how they've been doing this series of concerts where they've been literally driving a stage around town to different people's neighborhoods where they sit socially distanced. Yeah, I had heard about that, and immediately I was like, ooh, soldier's tale. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so great analogy. Amazing. 
Well, let's hear this then. This is a really, I think, fun movement. It's a march, although certainly not the way you would want any army to march, but it's a very fun movement from John Harbison's For Violin Alone, as performed by Jennifer Coe. You just heard the fourth movement of the seven-movement suite titled For Violin Alone by John Harbison, performed by Jennifer Coe on her new album Bach and Beyond Part 3. This is obviously part of the Beyond section of the album. If you like what you're hearing, I hope you'll check it out. It will be released everywhere on November 13th, so they'll make it available on all the streaming sites and download sites, and of course available as a physical CD which you can get from the Sadie Records website, c-e-d-i-l-l-e-records.org, or wherever you like to buy your music. And I certainly hope you will, because this is just such a fascinating album and a conclusion to such a fascinating series, the Bach and Beyond series. Of course, this is part three, so you can definitely check out parts one and two as well. So this project ends with the third sonata, the C major, as you mentioned earlier. We've talked already about the sonata in general, and of course, the standout movement for everybody is this incredible fugue, which, as you point out, in terms of bar numbers, is even longer than the famous Chaconne of the D minor partita, even though the playing time is not as long. 
In his notes to the album, Patrick Castillo comments that this movement, quote, stands nearly shoulder to shoulder with the famous Chaconne and cites in particular its immense expressive power and, of course, virtuosic demands on the player as well. So what does this music say to you, Jenny? I have to, again, reference everything lives in context with other things and relationally. So I see, again, the opening movement and the first movement. The fugue comes out of that first movement. And if one only learned the fugue, for example, the C major fugue, it could sound very declamatory. But for me, it's really much more of a kind of search. And it's not declamatory for me. For me, it's still an kind of internal journey and an internal work, expressive work. And anything to say about what makes this fugue so special in the Bach and, in fact, the world musical canon? What's interesting about it, aside from its length, is the fact that there's a section that's absolutely reversed. And then it's also interesting that there's a return with a different kind of ending to the first major section. So again, I think it's a kind of closing to the fugue. And it also reminds one in terms of form of the Chacon, which also returns at the end to the initial theme. Of course, again, with a different ending. Right. Well, let's hear a portion of that. This is an excerpt from the Fugue, second movement of Bach's Sonata Number no. 3 in C Major, BWV 1005, as performed by Jennifer Coe. Thank you. 
You just heard a portion of the fugue, the great fugue, from Bach's Sonata Number no. 3 for solo violin in C major, BWV 1005, as performed by Jennifer Coe. It's the final work on Bach and Beyond Part 3, the final album in this series of three albums of music of Bach and later, usually much later, composers for solo violin. Let's talk a little bit, Jenny, about what you have going on currently. Your current projects include Alone Together, an online commissioning project, and the New American Concerto. Jenny, could you describe these projects? Alone Together is a project that I thought up within a couple days of the shelter-in-place order in New York City because I realized right away that musicians were going to suffer All of my work canceled basically by the hour in the days leading up to the shelter in place. So, of course, I was concerned initially about myself. And then immediately I realized it was going to be much worse for younger artists. So Alone Together was an opportunity that I feel incredibly grateful in which Arco Collaborative, my nonprofit, was able to commission 20 younger composers who were recommended by composers with either salaried positions or institutional funding. I'm very grateful to the composers who both wrote pieces generously and donated their work, as well as recommending these younger composers to be commissioned. And of course, the emphasis for Arco Collaborative and also the mission in my life, in my career, is to be able to shape the future of classical music. And I think about how we can serve our communities, my artistic community, but also my community at large, and ultimately how to serve classical music, the art form that I'm a part of. It's really our loss as artists, but also as just audience members and listeners, if we do not have the chance to hear stories that are unlike our own stories and our own histories and our own experiences. It's really a tragic loss to not hear those stories. Historically, our form, of course, started in Western Europe, and there is also a very strong history of white supremacy within classical music. I feel very grateful to my mentors, including Felix Gallimere. He was a violinist in the Vienna Philharmonic, one of 11 members that were Jewish. And his life was saved by this great violinist, Bratislav Huberman. But of his colleagues, seven of them were killed by the Nazis. So unfortunately, there's a very long history of white supremacy. So most of my projects, which includes both Alone Together and, of course, Limitless, which I recorded for CD records, and also the New American Concerto Project, is really about representing the world we live in. And it's been a wonderful experience for myself to not only hear the stories of these composers, but to also discover their individual and unique artistic voices. And can you describe the New American Concerto? The New American Concerto is a project in which we are commissioning composers to write concerti, which directly engage with different social issues of the day. The first concerto in this project was written by Vijay Iyer, and it's called Trouble. 
The title comes from a quote from Representative John Lewis, the great civil rights activist, in which he talks about good trouble and making good trouble in order to create true social change. And in the middle movement, I see it as the heart of the piece, a movement dedicated to Vincent Chin, who was a Chinese American who was beaten to death in Detroit in the 1980s by two auto workers who believed he was Japanese, not American, and certainly not Chinese American, and beat him to death and accused him of stealing their jobs while beating him to death. And this was before hate crimes legislation was passed. Those men were released with a fine. In other words, a lot of these kicherti are dealing with issues that are historic and historical, but unfortunately very, very present at the same time today. Following that is a concerto by Courtney Bryan. Each movement is dedicated to a work of art by a different female visual artist of color, Alma Thomas, Maya Lin, and Frida Kahlo. A lot of these works are individual pathways to hear our voices. I'm a woman, I'm female, and I'm also a person of color. So I'm interested in hearing other people's experiences because I know that mine are not necessarily like other people's. And most of my life has been dedicated to telling the stories and understanding people that are completely unlike me. These are human beings like Bach, who have been passed on 300 years ago in a society and time that none of us directly experienced. We already, within classical music, listen to the stories of people unlike us. And I think for the future of classical music, it's vital for our field to actually reflect who we are as a community, who we are as a world. It's just time now. And finally, instead of asking about the Chicago music scene, as we usually do at the end of these podcasts, and of course you are born and bred in the Chicago area, but I think at this time it would be better to talk about what artistic responses to the COVID and Black Lives Matter crises we're facing have most inspired you? In terms of COVID, we've really observed what systemic inequalities there are in our healthcare system. The fact that people of color are dying at exponentially higher rates than white Americans. And I think in terms of Black Lives Matter, the police have been killing black men and women for centuries. And it's also been videotaped and released. And there have been articles written about it for decades. I was actually shocked that it became a political movement. Shocked in a good way, but shocked nonetheless. It's interesting to me because every single black artist that I've worked with and composer, every single one of them have pieces that they've written about a black woman, a black man that's been shot and killed by the police. So for me, this is not a new story, Black Lives Matter. Again, I think that this is one of the really crucial components of commissioning and engaging with artists of color and artists that are not like us because an essential part of Black Americans' lives is that they are killed by the police and that there's a great deal of fear. 
people talk about conversations about the birds and the bees with their kids, whereas with Black Americans, the conversation is, how do you not get killed? What do you do when you're engaging with a policeman or a policewoman? I'm not saying every single person in law enforcement is a bad person. I am just really surprised that suddenly people are, and not only black people, but I'm just surprised that white Americans are interested in this, finally. (laughs) For me, I still think an issue that needs to be addressed is violence towards Asian Americans. And I think that's not a conversation that's being had yet. There's a very different history and a very different experience that is not about slavery. What's completely different is that Asian Americans, whether they were migrant workers and denied citizenship, it was a choice to come to the United States. So I want to make that very clear. Black Americans, African Americans, were brought here and sold (laughs) and bought as slaves, which is completely different, of course, from the Asian experience. However, there's a very strong history and relationship. Right after the Civil War is when migrant labor from Asia was being pulled into the United States. So, for example, the Transcontinental Railroad. However, there was the Chinese Exclusionary Act, which was the only... U.S. policy that was directed against a specific ethnic group. Also, people of Asian descent were not allowed to own land or property. So there has been a long history, both of Asian American and Black American and Latino, Latinx political collaboration. But there's also an Asian American experience of racism as well. The one thing that I will say is that if it's bad for Asian Americans, it's definitely worse for black Americans in terms of violence, the amount of violence. But I think COVID times has also, and the amount of violence, which has not necessarily been brought forward, I think on a national scale, but the amount of beatings and killings of Asian Americans because they believe it's the quote unquote China virus, that's increased significantly. I think what's interesting about COVID times is that it's illustrated not only systemic inequalities in American society, it's a time of reckoning for me as an Asian American and all of us to understand the complicity in which we have supported anti-blackness. So I think that this could be a good time to reflect on that complicity and what advantages we have been able to have as a result of anti-blackness in America. And in terms of artistic responses, I think of something like clarinist Anthony McGill's Take Two Knees campaign on social media, for example, in response to the George Floyd killing. Are there other artistic responses that have resonated with you? Tyshawn Sori is writing a violin concerto for me, which is premiering with Detroit Symphony in November. And he's written a powerful work on black men being killed by the police. And also the concerto itself is about complete redaction of the soloist, which is how people of color are treated in the United States. So that's one reaction. I think the fact that Courtney Bryant, the piece that I heard of hers, was essentially an oratorio on the death of Sandra Bland. 
again, I think there's been numerous artistic engagements. If we go back in black music to hip hop that was emerging, we've been told about this for decades and decades. We've seen it. We saw it in the Rodney King beatings. It's not like this wasn't present. There have been videos of Eric Garner, and he was saying exactly the same thing, that he cannot breathe. There have been artistic responses for decades. It's just that they were told by the black community, so nobody was listening. All very good points. Well, this has been quite a wide-ranging discussion, but of course I think that's so appropriate to such a wide-ranging series as Bach and Beyond, the final volume of which, Bach and Beyond Part 3, being released on Sadie Records in November of 2020 with Jennifer Coe as the soloist and my guest on this classical Chicago podcast. So thank you so much, Jenny, for such a thought-provoking discussion. Thank you, Jim. Thank you.